Thanks, Alex. Uh, it's really good to be able to speak from God's word again this morning. Thank you so much for coming along. If you have a Bible with you, do open it up to Romans and chapter 15, and we'll have a look at that passage together. Romans chapter 15. Let me just pray to God as we turn to his word. Heavenly Father, as we uh, seek your face in scripture, please would you speak to us. Thank you that you delight to speak to us through your word. Um, We ask, Lord, for your blessing upon this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 15 and verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we may have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. May the Lord bless the reading of this word. Patrick prayed about the situation in Israel uh, this week, and I'm sure many of you have been following the news uh, regarding the situation there. And it's been really quite shocking, hasn't it, to see some of the events that have unfolded. Uh, I was just reading this morning that almost 200 people have died, um, including multiple children with many more wounded. Hundreds of rockets have been fired into Israel who have also carried out heavy airstrikes on Gaza. There's rioting in the streets with synagogues and schools and restaurants set on fire and uh, Jewish civilians have also assaulted Arabs, uh, increasing the ethno-religious tensions within that region. It's been really shocking to see, and I'm sure most of us would agree there's undoubtedly fault on both sides. There's a deep resentment and a hatred that exists between the two groups, and fighting in that region has been occurring on and off for decades, with thousands of lives being lost over the years. It seems as though peace in that region is almost impossible, doesn't it? But uh, I've heard accounts of Arabs and Jews, Palestinians and Israelis being reconciled. And earlier this week, I went on YouTube, and I found multiple videos of Arabs and Jews actually worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ together. And it was amazing to watch them. Um, The gospel had broken down that barrier that existed between them. And together with one voice, they glorified the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. They had been welcomed by Christ 
and therefore they welcomed one another for the glory of God. And I thought it was a beautiful, beautiful thing to see. It actually made me emotional as I watched a group of Christians from Jewish and Arab backgrounds praising God in Nazareth in Israel. And they were holding hands and they were dancing and they were singing together. What a contrast to those scenes that we see on our TV screens. It was a joyful, jubilant, peaceful scene and remarkable given the hatred that exists between those people groups in that part of the world. And that's the power of God's gospel, isn't it? That's the power of the gospel to transform hearts and lives. And in this section of Romans, we're thinking all about gospel unity. If you think back to last week, we considered Romans 14, and we considered the two major barriers to unity amongst Christians. The first was that we're very prone to judge one another, aren't we? We're very prone to do that. And the second is that we can very easily cause one another to stumble. And the call that God gave us in Romans 14 was that we need to pursue righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, to pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding, not to quarrel about disputable matters. Rather, the the call was to exercise our freedom in Christ, not for our own pleasure, but for the sake of our brothers and sisters, to limit our freedom at times for the sake of loving our brothers and sisters. And Romans 15, in effect, continues that theme There are a few differences and a few uh, different focuses, but it continues that theme. Look uh, down at the first few verses and you'll see, uh, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. It's a slightly different focus, isn't there? Uh, The kind of key verses in our section, if you look down at verses five to seven, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. I absolutely love those verses. That's God's goal for us as a church. Regardless of our background or personal preferences or anything else, God's goal is that together with one voice, we might glorify him. Here at Crescent, I was thinking about uh, kind of our makeup. Uh, We're all different. We're all from different backgrounds, aren't we? Different interests, different family cultures. Uh, There's been people who've been at this church their whole lives. Um, They've grown up here. People who come from a gospel hall background, from Presbyterian background, from a Methodist background, Church of Ireland, Pentecostal. Uh, We have people from a Christian background and a non-Christian background, uh, young, old, Uh, musical, arty, sporty, academic, practical. We've got people who earn a lot of money, people who don't earn as much money. We've got people from Asia, South America, Africa, uh, all the nations of the UK, uh, all coming together to worship the Lord with one voice. We've got people who live in the countryside, people who live in Belfast. Uh, We've got single people and married people, people who have children, people who don't, introverts and extroverts. And the point is we're all different, aren't we? Uh, on the face of it, people might look at Crescent and say, oh, actually, they're all the same. They're all uh, you know, Christians, and, and they're all very similar. But actually, no, when you dig a bit deeper, we're all different. That's how God has made us. And that's one of the reasons why it's not always easy to get along, because we're all so different. Our differences, coupled with human sinfulness, can divide us at times. But God's desire in these verses and in this passage is that we might be united together, a diverse group of men and women, young and old, glorifying God with one voice. 
And in a world that's massively fractured, I mean, you see that on the news at the moment, a world that's constantly at one another's throats, what a powerful testimony it can be when a diverse group of people are united. And we can point people to the God who brings about unity and diversity, who creates families out of people who couldn't even be friends outside of the gospel. So how can we get there is the question, and I think this passage helps us with that. How can we be the church that God has called us to be? Uh, Well, this passage gives us three principles to help move us in that direction, Uh, and these are those principles. Firstly, by living to please our neighbors. By living to please our neighbors. Secondly, by following Christ's example. And thirdly, by remembering God's plan. So let's uh, briefly look at each in turn. Firstly, by living to please our neighbors. I read those first two verses about uh, the strong having an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, not living to please themselves, living to please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. And it's a great summary of what it looks like to live an others-centered life, isn't it? Those who are strong in the faith, who realize, if you think back to last week, who realize things like the food we eat or the days we regard as holy or the style of praise we adopt at church, those are not the essential matters, not matters that increase or decrease our acceptability in the sight of God. Those strong believers, says Paul, have an obligation. That's a strong word, isn't it? An obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And I looked into this a little bit, and actually that idea of bearing with is actually bearing up, upholding the weak. It's not the world's idea of tolerance that we discussed last week. It's not a begrudging acceptance of the weak. It's actually coming alongside a weaker brother or sister and holding them up, seeking to strengthen them. And what is the way to strengthen a weaker believer? Because let's be clear, God doesn't want weak believers remaining weak indefinitely. Well, it seems from this section that the way to strengthen the weak believer, is not to crush them with theology or mockery or social isolation. Rather, it's to lovingly bear with them, to respect them, even if you disagree with what they're saying. So here's an example. Uh, Matt comes from a conservative Christian background, and he strongly believes the church should uh, not have instruments like guitars or or drums. In fact, he thinks the church has adopted a worldly, self-centered approach to worship. And the only way to counter that, he feels, is to revert to singing psalms and pre-20th century hymns. And he's quite uh, evangelistic in sharing those concerns. Then you've got Trev, by contrast, who thinks there are a number of helpful, theologically sound, modern worship songs that can be enjoyed alongside older music. And he's also comfortable with drums and guitar and so on. Uh, he, He doesn't feel they're worldly in and of themselves. Now, how do these guys interact? How do they get along with one another? How do they live together in the same church? Well, you know, Trev could clash with Matt over these matters. He could tell him he's being narrow and, you know, quote Bible verses about drums in the Old Testament and accuse him of being legalistic and and divisive or selfish even. Things could get quite ugly, couldn't they? But that's not what's going to build Matt up, is it? That's uh, That's not what it looks like to lovingly bear with him. So instead, what Trev does, having read the words of Romans 15, 1 and 2, he takes a different approach. And he goes for a coffee with Matt, and he listens to his concerns. And he seeks to affirm what is good in what, what Matt is saying. And he says something like, it's great you want to honor the Lord in this area, Matt. I'm so glad you're thinking about these things, because many people don't. It's true that some modern worship is problematic, and sometimes the instruments can become more of a hindrance than a help to our praise. 
Maybe he does also indicate that he has a different view on the matter, um, but he doesn't force it on Matt. He bears with him, he listens, he shows kindness and respect. And by the end of the conversation, Matt feels a little less combative and he thinks it would be nice to maybe get a coffee again. Now, you could push back and say, oh, Ollie, you're being pretty idealistic there. Uh, that sounds great, uh, but it doesn't always work like that. And I hear you, and I think that's fair enough. But we should make it our aim, shouldn't we? Never to entrench division or quarreling over non-essential matters. If we sought to bear with, bear up the weak, if we sought to build them up, what a difference it would make to the way we interact with one another. And of course, there are many other ways we can seek to love our neighbors. We can show hospitality to people who are very different to us, people we wouldn't normally hang out with, maybe. Uh, Tim Keller puts it like this, we're not simply to relate to our own kind or to the people who uh, give, us, give to us and build us up emotionally. We must be willing to love and relate to people who are draining. A Christian does not walk into a room and immediately ask, are these the people I want to be seen with? Are these the people I will enjoy? But rather, how can I help and build up these people? Who might I be able to serve in some way? I think that's a really uh, countercultural outlook, isn't it? But that's what it looks like to love our neighbors. So as COVID restrictions begin to ease, praise God, um, let's be very intentional about hospitality. We've got into the habit of living in our own little bubbles. I certainly have got quite used to my own little routine, my own way of doing things, and it's quite comfortable, actually, in some regards. You know, I, there is clearly hard dimensions to that, but actually it's meant that we can avoid, avoid some of the awkwardness and complexity that comes with relationships in the church family. But let's choose to be intentional in showing hospitality to one another in the coming weeks, even to people who are very different to us. So that's point one. How can we be the church God has called us to be by living to please our neighbors? Point two, by following Christ's example. This is not something that comes naturally to us, and Paul realizes that. He knows that we don't naturally live to please our neighbors. So in verse three, look down at verse three. He directs our gaze to the one who can motivate and empower us to live in this others-centered way the one whose life was characterized by selfless love. Verse three, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. The Lord Jesus Christ is our supreme example of bearing with others, of living for the good of his neighbor, of building others up. Even to the extent that he bore insult and shame so that others might come into life and peace. The quote in verse three is taken from Psalm 69. And it's a psalm in which a man faces suffering, unjust suffering, and bears the insults that wicked humanity throws against a holy God. The psalm is about David in first instance, but points forward to his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who bore scorn and ridicule in obedience to his father for the sake of humanity. In fact, Jesus himself quotes from this psalm in John 15, when he says, the world hated me without a cause. And as I reflected on that, how he, the sinless one, was treated, I thought of a number of inst instances that I want to share with you. Think of those guarding Jesus after his arrest, mocking him and beating him, blindfolding him and demanding that he prophesy and tell them who hit him. They hurled insults at him and some spat in his face. 
Think of Jesus standing before Ananias, the defecto high priest, and being slapped in the face by an official after giving what was a very measured and valid response to the questioning. Think of Pilate having Jesus flogged just to try and satisfy the Jewish lust for punishment. Think of the soldiers twisting together a crown of thorns and ramming it down on his sacred head. Think of how they mocked him, putting him in a purple robe, hail king of the Jews, they cried and slapped him in the face. Think of him carrying his cross towards Calvary, his body weak and tortured. Then they drove nails through his hands and through his feet, pinning him to those planks of wood. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, mocking him. Even the rebels crucified alongside him did the same. And as he hung dying, the soldiers below the cross gambled for his clothing. Yet he willingly suffered that deep humiliation. Why did he do it? Well, so that you could be welcomed, so that I could be welcomed. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed, wrote Peter. Our welcome required his selflessness. Our freedom and liberty required his bondage. So Paul says to quarreling Christians or Christians who attempted to quarrel, look at Christ. Look what he did to welcome you. Is it too much then for you to bear up a a weaker brother or sister? Is it too much then for you to love your neighbor? I just think, as I thought about that, how small and how petty our quarreling looks in the light of all that Christ suffered. In verse four, Paul introduces a little aside. He's just quoted from Psalm 69, and now he wants to reinforce the value of the scriptures in terms of pointing us to Christ. So look down at verse four. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we may have hope. I love this aside because it's really practical. Um, Essentially, he's saying, are you struggling to love your neighbor to put them first? Well, all scripture is written to instruct you, to teach you, to give you endurance and encouragement, to give you hope. So basically, Paul's saying, look at, look, at, look at the scriptures and see Christ in them. Understand God's grand plan for the universe. God's plan to unite all things under Christ. Become taken up with Christ. And when you do that, actually loving your neighbor will become a lot more obvious. Paul prays in verse five, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. That's a prayer because he knows we need God's power to live this radically countercultural way. And then having prayed, Paul writes, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. I think that statement is all the more poignant when you reflect on what it took for Christ to welcome us. So how can we, the church, be who God has called us to be by living to please our neighbor, by following Christ's example, and finally by remembering God's plan? What's the obvious thing to do if one half of the congregation want to sing hymns with no instruments or maybe just a piano, and the other half want a band, drums, electric guitar, bass guitar, and so on, along with contemporary Christian songs? What's the obvious thing to do in that scenario? 
Well, maybe it's for one half of the church to, uh, to have a service at one particular time and the other half to have a service at another particular time. Or what if one half of the church wants the breaking of bread service in the evening and the other in the morning? Do you have two services? How does it work? Another solution is, do, do you form two separate churches? One group leave and, uh, and join a pre-existing church, maybe, that better suits their style of worship. Well, verses 8 to 13 uh, tell us that those common responses are not in line with God's gospel plan. In fact, that way of doing things is fundamentally opposed to the gospel. What Paul does here is he quotes from the sweep of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the wisdom literature, to show that God's gospel plan is, is not that. It never has been. First from Psalm 18. Therefore, he says, this is verse 9, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Then from Deuteronomy 32, in verse 10, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Then from Psalm 117, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And finally from Isaiah, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. What's the common theme through all these passages of Scripture? Well, it's unity in diversity and the praise of God. Unity in diversity and the praise of God. Each passage demonstrates that it's always been God's plan to unite the nations, Jews and Gentiles, to praise God with one voice to find their hope in him. In verse 8, Paul tells us that Christ came into the world to bring that plan to fruition so that the Gentile nations, along with the Jews, might glorify God for his mercy. And so the implication of that is God doesn't want us to divide up into groups uh, based on our style of worship or race or culture or class or anything else, age, gender, you fill in the gap. God wants churches that are filled with diverse groups of people who love Christ and love one another. It's crystal clear from beginning to end of scripture. That is God's plan. And God's plan has an end goal, a climax in a new heaven and a new earth. And we read about it in Revelation 7. Revelation 7 and verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation! belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That's the climax of God's plan. As I watched earlier this week, Jews and Arabs worshipping God with one voice together, it actually brought tears to my eyes as I considered that was just a little glimpse of heaven. In a fractured, sin-scarred world, a world of selfishness, hostility, insult, and division, what a hope we have in Christ, the Christ who welcomes us that we might welcome others. So let's live to please our neighbors to build them up. Let's follow Christ's example the one who died, that we might be welcome. And let's remember God's great plan to unite the nations, a diverse group of men and women, boys and girls, to the praise of his glory and grace. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ faced insult, rejection, and humiliation so we might be welcomed into your family. Heavenly Father, how petty our quarreling looks in the light of his selflessness. Father, we realize that we are deeply sinful at times and we ask for your forgiveness for those times we fail to love our neighbors, for the times we fail to follow Christ's example, for the times we fail to remember your great plan to unite the nations, all people, to the praise of your glorious grace. God of encouragement and endurance, grant us to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together we may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God of hope, may you fill us with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit we may abound in hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.